Hello and welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. Judy DL reads Stuff Aloud. Listen closely to me. This is not your average Radioactive Cockroach podcast. So if this is your first visit, please go back to any other episode for a full disclosure about what a radioactive cockroach is and why we're doing this podcast. This podcast is dedicated to reading aloud informative stuff and then leavening it a bit with interesting stuff and closing it with really entertaining stuff. So we're calling this Judy DL Reads Stuff Aloud. Listen closely to me. Okay, so the order of proceedings is as follows. First up, there'll be about three minutes of the Victorian Current Act's Evidence Act from 2008. And then there'll be about ten minutes of the Victorian Criminal Procedure Manual. I think it's otherwise known as the Bench Book. It's published by the Judicial College of Victoria um, and it's section 13.4. It's the guidelines that judges use regarding how they deal with requests for and the admissibility of evidence concerning the complainant's sexual history. We then abandon the, the courts of Victoria and go to the Antipodes, the other side of the world, the UK. It's a letter written by a judge to a young person and constitutes the decision he made in that young person's interests. I really like it. Finally, we're going to have what I consider to be fun. We're going to leap into the world of Dorothy L. Sayers and the detective fiction she wrote that features Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey. This is going to be like our ongoing serial in Judy D.L. Reads Stuff Aloud. I'm going to heavily redact it. You're going to get galloping summaries of the plot about the actual solving of the crime. And what I'm going to read aloud are what I consider to be beautiful insights into the sociology of the time, the character of the time, and Dorothy L. Sayers' wonderful insight into what it was to be a woman of her time. At the end, I might even include some biographical insights. So, not radioactive cockroach as you come to know it. Go anywhere else but here for an average episode and for our primary purpose. But this is Judy DL Reads Stuff Aloud. Always bear in mind, you can choose not to listen to things. If you can predict that listening to legislation and court guidelines are going to tip you over into something really distressing, don't do it or do it carefully. And remember, don't hesitate to avail yourself of available resources. 1-800-RESPECT in Australia. The Samaritans on 11-61-23 in the UK. And in the US, 1-800-273-TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. Please forgive me if it emerges that I have misread the odd word here or there. This isn't legal advice. This isn't to be relied upon. These documents are on the internet. If you're thinking you need to do something formal with them, read them properly and get proper legal advice. Victorian Current Act, the Evidence Act, 2008, Section 41, headed improper questions. I'm reading this in its entirety except for the bits that tell you about the excluded bits and when they were amended. So some of the numbers are not consecutive. 1. The court must disallow an improper question or improper questioning put to a witness in cross-examination or inform the witness that it need not be answered. 3. In this section, improper question or improper questioning means a question or a sequence of questions put to a witness that A. is misleading or confusing or B. is unduly annoying, harassing, intimidating, offensive, oppressive, humiliating or repetitive 
or C is put to the witness in a manner or tone that is belittling, insulting or otherwise inappropriate or D has no basis other than a stereotype. For example, a stereotype based on the witness's sex, race, culture, ethnicity, age or mental, intellectual or physical disability. 5. A question is not an improper question merely because a. The question challenges the truthfulness of the witness or the consistency or accuracy of any statement made by the witness or b. The question requires the witness to discuss a subject that could be considered distasteful to or private by the witness. 6. A party may object to a question put to a witness on the ground that it is an improper question. 7. However, the duty imposed on the court by this section applies whether or not an objection is raised to a particular question. 8. A failure by the court to disallow a question under this section or to inform the witness that it need not be answered does not affect the admissibility and evidence of any answer given by the witness in response to the question. Notes. 1. A person must not, without the express permission of a court, print or publish any question that the court has disallowed under this section. See section 195. 2. Section 41 differs from the Commonwealth Act and New South Wales Act. Close your eyes. Listen. 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 This is an extract from the Victorian Criminal Proceedings Manual, published by the Judicial College of Victoria. It's taken from Section 13.4, Evidence Concerning the Complainant's Sexual History. We commence at number three, under the heading Victorian Offences. Division 2 of Part 8.2 of the CPA 2009 imposes three restrictions on the use and admission of evidence in proceedings that relate wholly or partly to a charge for a sexual offence. 4. First, courts must not admit evidence or allow any questions regarding the complainant's general reputation for chastity. CPA 2009 S341 5. Secondly, unless the court grants leave, the complainant must not be cross-examined and the court must not admit any evidence regarding the sexual activities of the complainant other than those relating to the offences charged. CPA 2009 S 342. 6. Finally, evidence that the complainant was accustomed to engaging in sexual activities or had freely engaged in other sexual activity with the accused or another person is not admissible to support an inference that the complainant was the kind of person who is more likely to have consented to the sexual activity in the offence charged. CPA 2009 S343 7. A party that wishes to lead evidence or to cross-examine the complainant on other sexual activity must apply for leave under S344 of the CPA 2009. The applicant must file this with the relevant court and serve the application on the informant or the DPP as the case requires at least seven days before the hearing. If the hearing relates to a summary proceeding, committal proceeding or a sentencing hearing. In the case of a trial, the application must be filed with the trial court and served on the DPP at least 14 days before trial is due to commence or if there is to be a special hearing at least 14 days before the hearing. CPA 2009 S344. Jumping to number 9. The application for leave must be in writing unless the court waives this requirement on the basis that it is in the interests of justice to do so. 1. The application must set out the following matters. 2. 
an application for leave to cross-examine the complainant as to the sexual activities of the complainant must set out a. the initial questions sought to be asked of the complainant and b. the scope of the questioning sought to flow from the initial questioning and c. how the evidence sought to be elicited from the questioning has substantial relevance to facts in issue or why it is proper matter for cross-examination as to credit. 3. An application for leave to admit evidence as to the sexual activities of the complainant must a. Identify the evidence that is sought to be admitted and b. Set out how the evidence has substantial relevance to facts in issue CPA 2009 S 346. Now going to number 11. The CPA 2009 specifies different tests for leave in summary, committal or trial proceedings on the one hand and sentencing hearings on the other. In both cases, the Act prescribes a negative test that the court must not grant leave unless satisfied that the special conditions are met. In summary, committal and trial proceedings, the conditions are that the evidence has substantial relevance to a fact in issue and it is in the interests of justice to admit the evidence or allow the cross-examination. Having regard to the following matters. A. Whether the probative value of the evidence outweighs the distress, humiliation and embarrassment that the complainant may experience as a result of the cross-examination or the admission of the evidence in view of the age of the complainant and the number and nature of questions that the complainant is like to be asked. And B. The risk that the evidence may arouse in the jury discriminatory belief or bias, prejudice sympathy or hostility and c the need to respect the complainant's personal dignity and privacy and d the right of the accused to fully answer and defend the charge cpa 2009 s349 in determining these matters a court must consider the effect of s352 of the cpa 2009 Sexual history evidence is not to be regarded a. as having a substantial relevance to the facts in issue by virtue of any inferences it may raise as to general disposition or b. as being a proper matter for cross-examination as to credit unless, because of special circumstances, it would be likely materially to impair confidence in the reliability of the evidence of the complainant CPA 2009 S 352. Commentary 26. These provisions have been introduced to encourage reporting of sexual offences and to counter a perception that courts did not treat complainants in sexual offence cases fairly. The provisions should be interpreted broadly to give effect to that purpose. 27. Judges must be careful to identify how the sexual history evidence is said to be relevant in the case, as that will affect the assessment of the admissibility of the evidence. For example, evidence that the complainant has previously been the victim of a sexual offence and has mistakenly attributed that event to the accused challenges the victim's reliability rather than credibility and is not likely to arouse discriminatory beliefs or biases. 28. In contrast, where the defence wishes to lead the evidence to establish that the complainant had previously had certain sexual experiences and was therefore in a better position to fabricate allegations of offending of a similar kind, it will often be appropriate to consider the age of the complainant and whether the complainant could have invented such allegations regardless of the previous sexual activity. 29. When deciding whether to grant leave, the court must not assume that the witness will give a particular answer. The court may grant leave to allow a party to challenge the witness's account by providing an alternate explanation for the prosecution's case or may seek to legitimately undermine the witness's credit. The court should not refuse leave and so exclude evidence where doing so leaves the jury with a potentially misleading view of the evidence. 30. One of the matters the court must consider when deciding whether it is in the interests of justice to admit evidence or other sexual activity 
is the need to respect the complainant's privacy and dignity. This consideration remains important even in a case where the complainant has died before trial. 31. Evidence may be relevant to a fact in issue even if it relates only to the credibility of a witness, the admissibility of other evidence or a failure to adduce evidence. 32. The exclusionary rules in CPA 2000 S341 and Crimes Act 1914 S15 YB only applies to evidence of the complainant's general reputation. It does not apply to evidence of the accused beliefs. In appropriate cases, the prosecution or the defence could lead evidence that the accused believes that the complainant is promiscuous. 33. The precise scope of the prohibition on adducing evidence as to other sexual activities of the complainant is unclear. The Court of Criminal Appeal queried whether the evidence that the complainant was regularly taking an oral contraceptive involved evidence of the complainant's sexual activities. In contrast, the Court in R v Summers, unreported VSCA 15th of June 1998, held that the prohibition extends to evidence that the complainant had made allegations of sexual offences on other occasions. The court warned that any distinction between cross-examining the complainant on the previous allegations and cross-examining on the substance of the complaints was likely to be more apparent than real. Close your eyes. Listen. 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 What I'm about to read in full is from a website called Bailey Eye. I'm choosing to pronounce it that way, B-A-I-L-I-I, which has something to do with publishing law things in the UK. And this is from a page, England and Wales, Family Court Decisions, High Court Judges. It was before the Honourable Mr Justice Peter Jackson between a father and a mother and stepfather and a young person. The father represented himself, the mother and stepfather represented themselves, the young person was represented by his solicitor. And it includes a letter to a young person. I think it's interesting. In July, I heard a private law case concerning the future of a 14-year-old boy. I will call him Sam, though that is not his real name. He lives with his mother and stepfather and sees his father regularly. His father wanted to take him to live in an identified Scandinavian country and the boy said that he wanted to go. Being competent to give instructions, he instructed his own solicitor and the matter reached high court level because the original application was in fact made by Sam himself. After some preliminary skirmishing, the application was then taken over by the father. One issue that arose was whether Sam should give evidence at the hearing. He wanted to do so, and his father supported that. But his mother and stepfather and the experienced Kafkas officer disagreed, saying that I should instead see him privately, which I was willing to do. In fact, I decided that Sam should give evidence briefly at the beginning of the hearing, but that he should not be questioned directly by either of his parents. Instead, each of them prepared five questions, which, after his solicitor had asked him five introductory questions, I put to Sam myself. In this way, his evidence took less than half an hour, and he was not subject to direct questioning by either parent. Sam was satisfied that he had got his point of view across and been seen to do so. At the end of his evidence, he left court and went on a school trip for the rest of the week, which was what he wanted. After he had gone, I heard evidence from the three parents and the Kafkas officer. At the end of the hearing, I gave my decision in the form of a letter to Sam, which I read to his parents and gave to his solicitor to give him and to discuss with him when he returned from his trip. Sam received the decision with apparent equanimity. Had I given a conventional judgment, I would have published it on Ballyi in accordance with my normal practice. I therefore asked the parties for their views about whether the letter 
amended to protect their identities, should be published in the same way. The response from Sam himself, from his mother and stepfather and from the Kafkas officer was that it should be published. In contrast, the father was vehemently opposed to any publication. However, he offered no reasons for his opposition. I therefore published the letter below. Dear Sam, It was a pleasure to meet you on Monday, and I hope your camp this week went well. This case is about you and your future, so I am writing this letter as a way of giving my decision to you and to your parents. When a case like this comes before the court, the judge has to apply the law as found in the Children Act of 1989 and particularly in Section 1. You may have looked at this already, but if you Google it, you will see that when making my decision, your welfare is my paramount consideration, more important than anything else. If you look at S1-3, there is also a list of factors I have to consider to make sure that everything is taken into account. The information I have comes from a variety of sources. There are the papers from the old proceedings years ago. There are more papers from the proceedings this year, especially your own statements, your mum and Paul's statements, your dad's statements, and the report of Gemma's, the Kafkas officer. Then there is the evidence each of you gave in court. I have taken all this into account. When I was appointed as a judge, I took the oath that every judge takes to apply the law in a way that is fair to everybody. Some people will say that this or that decision isn't fair, but that's usually their way of saying that they don't like the decision. People who like decisions don't usually say they are unfair. Here, your father loudly says that Kafkas is biased against fathers and during the hearing it became clear that he doesn't have much confidence in me either. He's entitled to his view, but I can tell you that I found no sign of bias on Gemma's part. On the contrary, I found her someone who had thought very carefully about you and your situation and used her professional experience of many, many family cases to reach an honest view of what would be for the best. The decisions that I have to take are these. 1. Should you go and live in Scandinavia? 2. Should you become a citizen there? 3. If all your parents are living in England, should you spend more time with your dad? 4. If your dad goes to Scandinavia and you stay here, how often should you see him? Here are the main matters that I take into account. 1. Your stated views. You told me that you have long wanted to live in Scandinavia and that you could see yourself living there with your dad. If that doesn't happen, you want to go back to having week on, week off. It worked in the past and you enjoyed it. You feel that your father helps you more with your education. If your dad goes to Scandinavia without you, you would be extremely unhappy. Your mum and Paul are very against you seeing more of your dad. 2. I believe that your feelings are that you love everyone in your family very much, just as they love you. The fact that your parents don't agree is naturally very stressful for you, and indeed for them. Gemma could see that when she met you, and so could I when you briefly gave evidence. Normally, even when parents are separated, they manage to agree on the best arrangements for their children. If they can't, the court is there as a last resort. Unfortunately, in your case, there have been court orders since you were one year old. 2004, 2005, 2006, 2009, 2010 and now again in 2017. What this shows is how very difficult your parents have found it to reach agreements. This is unusual, but it is how you have grown up. The danger is you get used to it. I was impressed with the way you gave evidence. You were of an age where your views carry a lot of weight with me and I consider them in the light of your understanding of what has made things as they are.
As to that, I don't think anyone of your age in your situation could understand it better than you do, but nor could they fully understand the influences that you are under and the effect that it has on you. Your parents have very different personalities. There is nothing wrong with that. It's one of the joys of life that people are different. One of your homes is quite conventional, the other very unconventional. There's nothing wrong with that either. What is of concern to me is this. I see your mother and Paul as being content with the life they lead, but I don't see that in your father. He is a man with some great qualities. When he is relaxed, he has charm and intelligence. But underneath that, I see someone who is troubled, not happy. He has not achieved his goals in life, apart, of course, from having you. Because of his personality style and the love you feel for him, he has a lot of influence over you. All fathers influence their sons, but your father goes a lot further than that. I'm quite clear that if he was happy with the present arrangement, you probably would be too. Because he isn't, you aren't. So I have a view on the question of whether the idea of these proceedings comes from you or from your dad. My view is that you brought the proceedings mainly as a way of showing your dad how much you love him. It was mainly to meet his needs and not yours. I have seen the self-centred way that he behaves, even in the courtroom, and how he makes sure everybody knows how little respect he has for anybody who disagrees with him. Even as a judge, I found it hard work stopping him from insulting the other witnesses. Your mother certainly finds his behaviour difficult, so difficult that she avoids contact with him whenever possible. I don't think you yet realise the influence that your father has over you. It leads you to side with him and praise him whenever you can. You don't do the same for your mother. Why is that? Is it because you sense that he needs it and she doesn't? Also, I may be wrong, but when you gave your evidence, I didn't get the feeling that you actually see your future in Scandinavia at all. Instead, what I saw was your doing your duty by your dad while trying not to be too unfair to your mum. But you still felt you had to boost your dad wherever you could. That's how subtle and not so subtle pressure works. So I respect your views, but I don't take them at face value because I think they are significantly formed by your loyalty to your father. And it is not just that. I believe your father has in some ways lost sight of what is best for you. He told me that he felt absolutely no responsibility for the state of the relationship between him and your mother. Nor did he satisfy me about his decision to emigrate without you, something he first mentioned in May, and why he would want to do something that would so obviously cause you such unhappiness. On Monday, he told me it was 95% likely that he would go alone. On Wednesday, he told me it was 100% certain. Today, Thursday, he said it was 99.9997% certain, but in his closing remarks a short while ago, he said, if I go to Scandinavia, before correcting if to when. My conclusion about all this, I'm afraid, is that whether he knows it or not, your father has a manipulative side. I don't believe he has any real idea whether he'll go to Scandinavia or not, so nor do I. I can see that for him personally, Scandinavia may have some attractions, but I don't believe he will find it at all easy to stop seeing you. I very much hope he will stay for your sake, even if it is at a cost to himself. Sam, the evidence shows that you are doing well in life at the moment. You have your school, your friends, your music and two homes. You've lived in England all your life. All your friends and most of your family are here. 
I have to consider the effect of any change in the arrangement and any harm that might come from it. In any case, where parents don't agree about a move overseas, the parent wanting to move has at least to show that they have a realistic plan. The plan can then be compared with other plans to see which is best. That has not been possible here. You will remember that at the earlier hearing in May, I made it very clear to your father that if he was going to seriously put forward a move to Scandinavia, he had to give the court proper information about where you would be living and going to school, where the money would be coming from, and what the arrangements would be for you to keep in touch with family and friends in England. At this hearing, no information at all has been given. Your father described the move to Scandinavia as an adventure and said that once the court had given the green light, he would arrange everything. That is not good enough. In over 30 years of doing family law cases, I have never come across a parent who thought it might be and no court could possibly accept it. What it means is that I have no confidence at all that a move to Scandinavia would work. Your dad thinks he would find a good life and good work there, but I have seen nothing to back that up. He hasn't made a single inquiry about houses, schools or jobs. You don't speak the language and you haven't been there since you were five. Even your dad hasn't been there for over ten years. I also doubt his ability to provide you with a secure home and a reasonable standard of living if you lived with him full time. I would worry about how it would be for you if things started to go wrong. I think you would find it exciting at first, but when reality set in, you might become sad and isolated. I also don't think it is good for you to be with your father 24-7. In some ways, he would expand your vision of the world, but in many more ways he would narrow it because he holds such very strong views himself and because I believe that, maybe sincerely and without realising it, he needs you to fall in with his way of thinking. I also think it would be very harmful to be living so far away from your mum, from young Edward, who needs you too, and from Paul. So I very much see you completing your schooling here. If, when you finish your A-levels, you want to move to Scandinavia, you will be 18 and an adult. It will be up to you. Until then, I agree with Gemma and with your mum and Paul that you should make the most of the many opportunities that life here has to offer you. Although your dad is not that impressed with your school, most kids across the country would give a lot to have the life chances you already have. You don't need more chances or changes, but rather to make the most of what you have already. As you will not be living in Scandinavia, I also don't think that it would be in your interests to apply for citizenship there at this stage. I agree with Gemma that it would be a distraction. If you decide to do that when you're 18, all well and good. I have thought carefully about your request to spend more time with your father. I'm afraid that I think the idea of spending week on, week off would be disastrous. It may have worked with some difficulty when you were in primary school, but it will not help your development to share your time between two homes with such different philosophies. In the end, not without some hesitation, and only if your father decides to remain living in England, I'm going to follow something like the arrangement that Gemma recommends. I will give you some more time with your dad and more independence in getting to and from school. It won't surprise you to hear that your dad told me that any outcome like this would be totally unacceptable to him and to you. Can I suggest that you do your own thinking and don't let his views drown out yours? There needs to be an end to proceedings of this sort. They have been extremely stressful for everyone. This is the fifth case there has been about you and unless something pretty extraordinary happens, it should be the last. So, coming to the orders I am going to make. A. 
I dismiss your dad's application to take you to live in Scandinavia and for you to apply for citizenship there. B. You will have a holiday of a week in the second half of August this year with your dad to be spent at his home unless he and your mother agree that it is going to be spent somewhere else. C. I shall direct your father to write to your mother no later than the 1st of September to inform her whether or not he will be moving to Scandinavia and, if so, when. D. If he writes that he is going to be moving, or does not write at all, contact will remain as it is, i.e. i.e. alternate weekends from Friday evening to Sunday evening. After he goes, contact, face-to-face and by phone, Skype, etc., will be as agreed between your parents. E. If your father writes to your mother that he is not going to be moving, contact will take place as follows. From the beginning of September, alternate weekends from Friday, direct from school, to Monday, direct to school, until the end of the year. From the beginning of 2018, it will be alternate weekends from Thursday, direct to school, to Monday, direct to school. I have not followed Gemma's suggestion exactly because I think it is harder on you to go backwards and forwards between the two homes every week. I think it would be better if you did that once a fortnight and that the increase is phased in. F. I will make an order under Section 9114 of the Children Act, that no further applications concerning you can be brought before the court by anyone, including yourself, without the designated family judge giving permission. This order will run until the 1st of September 2019, so after your GCSEs. I do not think it need run for longer than that. The court will always give permission if someone wants to bring a reasonable application but it gives the court control before any fresh proceedings are started. Sam, I realise that this order is not the one you said you wanted me to make, but I am confident that it is the right order for you in the long run. Whatever each of your parents might think about it, I hope they have the dignity not to impose their views on you so that you can work things out for yourself. I know that as you get older, you will do this increasingly and I hope that you will come to see why I have made these decisions. I wish you every success with your future and if you want to reply to this letter, I know that your solicitor will make sure that your reply reaches me. Lastly, I wanted to tell you that your dad and I enjoyed finding out that we both love the film My Cousin Vinny even if it might be for different reasons. He mentioned it as an example of a miscarriage of justice, while I remember it for the best courtroom scenes in any film and the fact that justice was done in the end. Kind regards, Mr Justice Peter Jackson. As a result of reading this letter, I went and had a look at My Cousin Vinny. I'd never seen it and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a fabulous film. We now commence our dance through Strong Poison by Dorothy L. Sayers. It was written in the 1930s and is set in the 1920s, 1920s England. It commences in a courtroom where the judge is summing up for the jury. Harriet Vane is the prisoner in the box. He did not, Sayers says, look at the prisoner, but she looked at him. Her eyes, like dark smudges under the heavy square brows, seemed equally without fear and without hope. It's a very long address, where we learn Harriet is accused of murdering a former lover with whom she had lived. She had severed the relationship. Her grievance was that he had made fools of both of them. She had agreed to live with him de facto, 
on account of his moral objection to marriage, and she left when he asked her to marry him. When he later dies of arsenic poisoning, it emerges she has made several purchases of poisons under false names. She claims the purchases were research for her latest novel. The judge is far from sympathetic in his address to the jury, judging her harshly for her morals or apparent lack of them. In Chapter 3, we meet Lord Peter, Lord Peter Whimsey, who is on friendly terms with Chief Inspector Parker, with whom he remonstrates. Whimsy is agitatedly convinced of Harriet's innocence. We also meet the Dowager Duchess of Denver, Whimsy's mother, who combines the ability to talk real sense while appearing to rabbit aimlessly. She makes it known that another important character, Miss Clemson, an elderly associate of Lord Peter, is on the jury. There is also Freddie Arbuthnot, a financier friend of Whimsy's, who really is an airhead. And also some recurring characters in Sayer's writing, some members of the press. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could Bessie couldn't help it though she tried to be good oh so good she was pretty as the heaven above oh boy and how she could love Bessie had affection that was simply and so here's me reading aloud a very upper class English text with a thick Australian accent. If you can't deal with that, there are things on Audible. But I reckon I do okay. Oh, she will meddle this little she couldn't help it any more than you could or I could. Harriet Vane has been tried for the murder of her lover by poison. This resulted in a hung jury. Lord Peter Whimsey was present and was terribly impressed by her. And as a consequence, he's now decided that he will take up the case. Chapter 4 The following day was a Sunday, but Sir Impey Biggs cancelled an engagement to play golf, with less regret as it was pouring cats and dogs, and held an extraordinary council of war. Well now, Whimsey, said the advocate, what is your idea about this? May I introduce Mr Crofts of Crofts and Cooper, solicitors for the defence? Well, my idea is that Miss Vane didn't do it, said Whimsy. I dare say that's an idea which has already occurred to you, but with the weight of my great mind behind it, no doubt it strikes the imagination more forcibly. Mr Crofts, not being quite clear whether this was funny or fatuous, smiled deferentially. Quite so, said Sir Impey, but I should be interested to know how many of the jury saw it in that light. Oh, well, I can tell you that, at least, because I know one of them. One woman and half a woman and about three quarters of a man. Uh, meaning precisely? Well, the woman I know stuck out for it that Miss Vane wasn't that sort of person. They bullied her a good deal, of course, because she couldn't lay a finger on any real weakness in the chain of evidence but she said the prisoner's demeanour was part of the evidence and that she was entitled to take that into consideration. Fortunately, she is a tough, thin, elderly woman with a sound digestion and a militant high-church conscience of remarkable staying power and her wind is excellent. She let them gallop themselves dead and then said she didn't believe it and she wasn't going to say she did. Very useful, said Sir Impey. A person who can believe all the articles of the Christian faith is not going to boggle over a trifle of adverse evidence. But we can never hope for a whole jury box full of ecclesiastic diehards. How about the other woman and the man? Well, the woman was rather unexpected. She was the stout, prosperous party who keeps sweet shop. She said she didn't think the case was proved and it was perfectly possible that Boys had taken the stuff himself or that his cousin had given it to him. She was influenced, rather oddly, by the fact that she had attended one or two arsenic trials and had not been satisfied by the verdict in some other cases, notably the Seddon trial. She has no opinion of men in general, she has buried her third, and she disbelieves all expert evidence on principle. 
She said that, personally, she thought Miss Vane might have done it, but she wouldn't really hang a dog on medical evidence. At first, she was ready to vote with the majority, but she took a dislike to the foreman who tried to bear her down with his male authority, and eventually she said she was going to back up my friend, Miss Clemson. Sir Impey laughed. Very interesting. I wish we always got this inside information about juries. We sweat like hell to prepare evidence, and then one person makes up her mind on what really isn't evidence at all, and another supports her on the ground that evidence can't be relied on. How about the man? The man was an artist and the only person who really understood the kind of life these people were leading. He believed your client's version of the quarrel and said that if the girl really felt like that about the man, the last thing she would want to do would be to kill him. She'd rather stand back and watch him make, like the man with the hollow tooth in the comic song. He was also able to believe the whole story about purchasing the poisons, which to the others, of course, seemed extremely feeble. He also said that boys from what he had heard, was a conceited prig and that anyone who disposed of him was doing a public service. He had had the misfortune to read some of his books and considered the man an excrescence and a public nuisance. Actually, he thought it was more likely that he had committed suicide and if anybody was prepared to take that point of view, he was ready to second it. He also alarmed the jury by saying that he was accustomed to late hours and a stale atmosphere and had not the slightest objection to sitting up all night. Miss Clemson also said that, in a righteous cause, a little personal discomfort was a trifle and added that her religion had trained her to fasting. At that point, the third woman had hysterics and another man, who had an important deal to put through the next day, lost his temper. So to prevent bodily violence, the foreman said he thought they had better agree to disagree. So that's how it was. Well, they've given us another chance, said Mr Crofts. So it's all to the good. It can't come on now until the next sessions, which gives us about a month, and we'll probably get Bancroft next time, who's not such a severe judge as Crosley. The thing is, can we do anything to improve the look of our case? I'm going to have a strenuous go at it said Whimsy. There must be evidence somewhere, you know. I know you've all worked like beavers, but I'm going to work like a king beaver, and I've got one big advantage over the rest of you. More brains, suggested Sir Impey, grinning. No, I should hate to suggest that, Biggie, but I do believe in Miss Vane's innocence. Damn it, Whimsy, didn't my eloquent speeches convince you that I was a wholehearted believer? Of course they did. I nearly shed tears. Here's old Biggie, I said to myself, going to retire from the bar and cut his throat if this verdict goes against him, because he won't believe in British justice anymore. No, it's your triumph at having secured a disagreement that gives you away, old horse, more than you expected. You said so. By the way, if it's not a rude question, who's paying you, Biggie? Crofts and Cooper, said Sir Impey, slyly. Ah, they're doing the thing for their health, I take it. No, Lord Peter, as a matter of fact, the costs in this case are being borne by Miss Vane's publishers and by a, well, a certain newspaper, which is running her new book as a serial. They expect a scoop as a result of all this. But frankly, I don't quite know what they'll say to the expense of a fresh trial. I'm expecting to hear from them this morning. The vultures, said Whimsy. Well, they'd better carry on, but tell them I'll see they're guaranteed. Don't bring my name in, though. That's very generous. Not at all. I wouldn't lose the fun of this for the world. Sort of case I fairly wallow in. But in return, I want you to do something for me. I want to see Miss Vane. You must get me passed in as part of your outfit so that I can hear her version of the story in reasonable privacy. Get me? I expect that can be done, said Sir Impey. In the meantime, you have nothing to suggest? Haven't had time yet, but I'll fish out something, don't you worry. I've already started to undermine the confidence of the police. Chief Inspector Parker has gone home to twine willow wreaths for his own tombstone. You'll be careful, said Sir Impey. Anything we can discover will come in much more effectively if the prosecution don't know of it beforehand. I'll walk on eggshells, but if I find the real murderer, if any, you won't object to my having him or her arrested, I take it? No, I won't object to that. The police may. Well, gentlemen, if there's nothing further at the moment, we'd better adjourn the meeting. You'll get Lord Peter the facilities he wants, Mr Crofts.
Mr. Crofts exerted himself with energy, and on the following morning, Lord Peter presented himself at the gates of Holloway Jail with his credentials. Oh, yes, my lord, you are to be treated on the same footing as the prisoner's solicitor. Yes, we have had a separate communication from the police, and that will be quite all right, my lord. The warder will take you down and explain the regulations to you. Whimsy was conducted through a number of bare corridors to a small room with a glass door. There was a long deal table in it and a couple of repellent chairs, one at either end of the table. Here you are, my lord. You sit at one end and the prisoner at the other and you must be careful not to move from your seats nor to pass any object over the table. I shall be outside and see you through the glass, my lord, but I shan't be able to overhear anything. If you will take a seat, they'll bring the prisoner in, my lord. Whimsy sat down and waited, a prey to curious sensations. Presently there was a noise of footsteps and the prisoner was brought in, attended by a female wardress. She took the chair opposite to Whimsy. The wardress withdrew and the door was shut. Whimsy, who had risen, cleared his throat. <coughs> Good afternoon, Miss Vane, he said unimpressively. The prisoner looked at him. Please sit down, she said, in the curious deep voice which had attracted him in court. You are Lord Peter Whimsy, I believe, and have come from Mr Crofts. Yes, said Whimsy. Her steady gaze was unnerving him. Yes, I uh, I heard the case and all that, and uh, I thought there might be something I could do, don't you know? Well, that's very good of you, said the prisoner. Not at all, not at all, dash it. I mean, to say I rather enjoy investigating things, if you know what I mean. I know. Being a writer of detective stories, I have, naturally, studied your career with interest. She smiled suddenly at him and his heart turned to water. Well, that, that's rather a good thing in a way because you'll understand that I'm really not such an ass as I'm looking at present. That made her laugh. You're not looking an ass, at least no more than any gentleman should under the circumstances. The background doesn't altogether suit your style, but you are a very refreshing sight and I'm really very grateful to you, though I'm afraid I'm rather a hopeless case. Don't say that. It can't be hopeless unless you actually did it, and I, I know you didn't. Well, I didn't, as a matter of fact. But I feel it's like one book I wrote in which I invented it's such a perfectly watertight crime that I couldn't devise any way for my detective to prove it and had to fall back on the murderer's confession. If necessary, we'll do the same. You don't happen to know who the murderer is, I suppose? I don't think there is one. I really believe Philip took the stuff himself. He was rather a defeatist sort of person, you know. I suppose he took your separation pretty hard. Well, I dare say it was partly that, but I think it was more that he didn't feel he was sufficiently appreciated. He was apt to think that people were in league to spoil his chances. And were they? No, I don't think so. But I do think he offended a great many people. He was rather apt to demand things as a right, and that annoys people, you know. Yes, I see. Did he get on all right with his cousin? Oh, yes, though, of course, he always said it was no more than Mr Urquhart's duty to look after him. Mr Urquhart is fairly well off, as he has quite a big professional connection, but Philip really had no claim on him, as it wasn't family money or anything. His idea was that great artists deserved to be boarded and lodged at the expense of the ordinary man. Whimsy was fairly well acquainted with this variety of the artistic temperament. He was struck, however, by the tone of the reply which was tinged, he thought, with bitterness and even some contempt. He put his question with some hesitation. Forgive my asking, but were you very fond of Philip Boys? Well, I must have been, mustn't I, under the circumstances? You might have been sorry for him or bewitched by him or even badgered to death by him. All of those things. Whimsy considered for a moment. Were you friends? No. The word broke out with a kind of repressed savagery that startled him. Philip wasn't the sort of man to make a friend of a woman. He wanted devotion. Oh, I gave him that. I did, you know. But I couldn't stand being made a off. I couldn't stand being put on probation like an office boy to see if I was good enough to be condescended to. 
I quite thought he was honest when he said he didn't believe in marriage, and then it turned out that it was a test to see whether my devotion was abject enough. Well, it wasn't. I didn't like having matrimony offered as a bad conduct prize. I don't blame you, said Whimsy. Don't you? No. It sounds to me as if the fellow was a prig, not to say a bit of a cad, like the horrid man who pretended to be a landscape painter and then embarrassed the unfortunate young woman with the burden of an honour unto which she was not born. I've no doubt he made himself perfectly intolerable about it, with his ancient oaks and family plate and the curtsying tenantry and all the rest of it. Harriet Vane laughed once more. Yes, it's ridiculous. But humiliating too. Well, there it is. I thought Philip had made both himself and me ridiculous, and the minute I saw that, well, the whole thing simply shut down. Flop. She sketched a gesture of finality. I quite see that, said Whimsy. Such a Victorian attitude, too, for a man with advanced ideas. He forgot only, she forgot in him, and so on. Well, I'm glad you feel like that about it. Are you? It's not going to be exactly helpful in the present crisis. No, I was looking beyond that. What I mean to say is, when all this is over, I I want to marry you, if you can put up with me and all that. Harriet Vane, who had been smiling at him, frowned, and an indefinable expression of distaste came into her eyes. Oh, are you another of them? That makes forty-seven. Forty-seven what? asked Whimsy, much taken aback. Proposals. They come in by every post. I suppose there are a lot of imbeciles who want to marry anyone who's at all notorious. Oh, said Whimsy, dear me, that that makes it very awkward. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I don't need any notoriety. I can get into the papers off my own bat. It's no treat to me. Pa- perhaps I'd better not mention it again. His voice sounded hurt and the girl eyed him rather remorsefully. I'm sorry, but one gets a bruised sort of feeling in my position. There have been so many beastlinesses. I know, said Lord Peter. It was stupid of me. No, I think it was stupid of me. But why? Why? Oh, well, I I thought you'd be rather an attractive person to marry. That's all I mean. I sort of took a fancy to you. Can't tell why. There's no rule about it, you know. I see. Well, that's very nice of you. I wish you wouldn't sound as if you thought it was rather funny. I know I've got a silly face, but I can't help that. As a matter of fact, I'd like somebody I could talk sensibly to who would make life interesting. I could give you a lot of plots for your books, if that's an inducement. But you wouldn't want a wife who wrote books, would you? Oh, but I should. It would be great fun. So much more interesting than the ordinary kind that's only keen on clothes and people. Though, of course, clothes and people are all right too, in moderation. I don't mean to object to clothes. And how about the old oaks and the family plate? Oh, you wouldn't be bothered with them. My brother does all that. I collect first editions in Incanabulae, which is a little tedious of me. But you wouldn't need to bother with them either, unless you liked. I don't mean that. What would your family think about it? Oh, my mother's the only one that counts, and she likes you very much from what she's seen of you. Oh, so you've had me inspected. No, dash it all. I seem to be saying all the wrong things today. I was absolutely stunned that first day in court, and I rushed off to my mater, who's an absolute dear, and the kind of person who really understands things, and I said, look here, here's the absolutely one and only woman, and she's being put through a simply ghastly awful business and for god's sake come and hold my hand you simply don't know how foul it was oh that does sound rather rotten i'm sorry i was so brutal but by the way you're bearing in mind aren't you that i've had a lover oh yes so have i if it comes to that in fact several it's the sort of thing that might happen to anybody i can produce quite good testimonials i'm told i make love rather nicely only i'm at a disadvantage at the moment one can't be very convincing at the other end of a table with a bloke looking in at the door i will take your word for it but however entrancing it is to wander unchecked through a garden of bright images are we not enticing your mind from another subject of almost equal importance it seems probable and if you can quote Kai Long, we should certainly get on together. 
It seems very probable that I shall not survive to make the experiment. Don't be so damn discouraging, said Whimsy. I have already carefully explained to you that this time I am investigating the business. Anybody would think you had no confidence in me. People have been wrongly condemned before now. Exactly. Simply because I wasn't there. Oh, well, I never thought of that. Think of it now. You will find it very beautiful and inspiring. It might even help to distinguish me from the other 46, if you should happen to mislay my features or anything. Oh, by the way, I don't positively repel you or anything like that, do I? Because if I do, I'll take my name off the waiting list at once. No, said Harriet Vane, kindly and a little sadly. No, you don't repel me. I don't remind you of white slugs or make you go goose flesh all over. Certainly not. Oh, I'm glad of that. Any minor alterations like parting the old mane or growing a toothbrush or cashiering the eyeglass, you know, I should be happy to undertake if it suited your ideas. Don't, said Miss Vane. Please don't alter yourself in any particular. You really mean that? Whimsy flushed a little. I hope it doesn't mean that nothing I could do would make me even passable. I'll come in a different set of garments each time, so as to give you a good all-round idea of the subject. Bunter, my man, you know, will see to that. He has excellent taste in ties and socks and things like that. Well, I suppose I ought to be going. You, uh, you'll think it over, won't you, if you have a minute to spare? There's no hurry. Only don't hesitate to say if you think you couldn't stick it at any price. I'm not trying to blackmail you into matrimony, you know. I mean, I should investigate this for the fun of the thing. Whatever happened, don't you see? It's very good of you. No, no, not at all. It's my hobby. Not proposing to people, I don't mean, but investigating things. Well, cheer frightfully, ho, and all that, and I'll call again if I may. I will give the footman orders to admit you, said the prisoner gravely. You will always find me at home. Whimsy walked down the dingy street with a feeling of being almost light-headed. I do believe I'll pull it off. She saw, of course, no wonder after that rotten brute. But she doesn't feel repelled. One couldn't cope with being repulsive. Her skin is like honey. She ought to wear deep red and old garnets and lots of rings, rather old-fashioned ones. Oh, I could work to make it up to her. She's got a sense of humour too. Brains. One wouldn't be dull. One would wake up and, and there'd be a whole day of for jolly things to happen. And then one would come home and go to bed. That would be jolly too. And while she was writing, I could go out and mess around, so we shouldn't either of us be dull. I wonder if Bunter was right about this suit. It's a little dark, I always think. But the line is good. He paused before a shop window to get a surreptitious view of his own reflection. A large coloured window bill caught his eye. Great special offer. One month only. Oh, God, he said softly, sobered at once. One month. Four weeks. Thirty-one days. There isn't much time. And I don't know where to begin. <laughs> So that's the end of chapter four. Join us again next time and we'll gallop through the plot and hone in on another character. Miss Clemson. Oh, she will meddle this rouse of the mind. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could.